and how outrageous he was with women. He had already had three wives, and he had several children. He was debonair, dashing, good-looking, and extremely charming. He was also sixty-one, and Carol was thirty-nine. He was old enough to be her father. A decade earlier, Carol had been twenty-nine, beautiful, extremely bright, and had a great job with a law firm on Wall Street. They'd been dating for a year before Charlie got transferred to run the London office of his architectural firm, Whitaker & Jones, but it was never serious between them. He was transferred from New York, where he'd worked for them for two years, and he was delighted. She came to London on a lark to see him, and she had no intention of staying, but she fell in love with London, and then with him. It was different here. Everything was more romantic. She started flying over whenever she could to see him on weekends. It was the perfect life for them. They skied in Davos and Gestad and St. Moritz. She had gone to school in Switzerland when her father worked in France, and she had friends all over Europe. She was completely at home here. She spoke German and French with ease. She fit right into the London social scene, and Charlie adored her. After six months of commuting, she found a job in the London office of an American law firm. They bought an old carriage house in Chelsea, and she moved in with him, and they were like two crazy, wild, happy people. They spent almost every night dancing at Annabelle's at first, and discovering all the wonderful little out-of-the-way places, restaurants, and antique shops and nightclubs. They led a charmed life, and between their various business trips, they managed to get married and spend a honeymoon in Morocco in a palace Charlie had rented for them. Everything they did was stylish and fun and exciting. They were the kind of people everyone wanted to know or be with. And Charlie loved being with Carol more than anything. She was long and lean and blonde with perfect limbs and a body that looked as though it had been sculpted from white marble. She had a laugh that sounded like bells and a deep, sexy voice that made him tingle whenever he heard it. It was the golden life of two careers, two powerful, intelligent, interesting, successful people. The only thing they didn't have or want or need were children. They talked about it repeatedly, but it never seemed the right time to them. Carol had too many important and extremely demanding clients. To Carol, they were her children. And Charlie didn't really mind. He loved the idea of having a little girl who looked like her, but in truth, he was too crazy about her to want to share her. They had never actually decided not to have kids. They just hadn't done it. And the life they'd built together was perfection. He was never bored with her, never tired of her and neither of them seemed to mind the fact that the other traveled extensively. If anything, it made it more exciting to come back to London. As Charlie flew inexorably toward New York, he couldn't help counting backward again. The affair had begun exactly fifteen months before, in August. She had told him that, when she told him everything, finally. She and Simon had been working in Paris together for six weeks. It was an important case, it had been fraught with tension, and Charlie had been at a delicate stage of a major negotiation with huge new clients in Hong Kong. He had been there almost weekly for nearly three months, but it wasn't his absence that had done them in, she explained. It was just time, and fate, and Simon. He was remarkable, and she was in love with him. He had swept her off her feet, and she knew it was wrong, but she insisted she couldn't help it. They just had too much in common. She and Charlie had both cried when she said it. After Paris, Carol had actually tried to break off with Simon, 
and Simon had said he understood perfectly. Simon was single at the time, but he was entirely sympathetic to Carol's feelings of guilt and obligation to her husband. But what neither of them had counted on was how much they would miss each other. They began to leave the office together in the afternoons to go to his flat, just to talk sometimes, so she could air her feelings, and she found that what she loved most about him was how well he understood everything, how solicitous he was of her, how much he loved her. The physical aspect of the affair with Simon began again two months after they'd tried to end it, and her life was one long deception after that, of meeting him after work almost every night and pretending to work together on weekends. It was Carol who made a clean breast of it finally, and told Charlie all of it, when it began, how long it had gone on, and he just sat and stared at her with tears in his eyes as he listened. And then, finally, he asked, what are you planning to do about it? He couldn't believe how acute the pain of having just been told she was sleeping with another man was. The real question was, did she love Simon, or was she just having fun? Charlie knew he had to ask her. Are you in love with him? he asked, feeling worlds collide in his head and heart and stomach. What in God's name would he ever do, he asked himself, if she left him? He couldn't even imagine it and knowing that, he could forgive her anything and planned to. The one thing he knew was that he didn't want to lose her. But she hesitated for a long, long time before she answered. I think so, she said. She was always so goddamn honest with him. She always had been. That was why she had told him. Even now, she didn't want to lose that. I don't know. When I'm with him, I'm sure of it. But I love you, too. I always will. There had never been anyone else in her life like Charlie, nor like Simon. She loved them both in her own way, but she knew she'd have to choose now. They could have gone on like this for a long time. People did, she knew, but she was also well aware that she couldn't. It had happened. Now she had to deal with it. And so did Charlie. In March, when Charlie flew to Berlin for three days, Carol packed her things and moved in with Simon. She told Charlie on the phone, and he sat in his hotel room and cried. And in the ensuing months, he ricocheted between despair and rage. He could hardly keep his mind on his work. He stopped seeing his friends. He sat alone in his house sometimes just thinking of her. He sat in the dark, hungry, tired, still unable to believe what had happened. He kept hoping that the affair with Simon would end, that she would tire of him, that she would decide he was too old for her, too smooth, or maybe that he was a pompous windbag. He prayed for all of it, but none of it ever happened. She and Simon seemed very happy. He saw photographs of them in newspapers and magazines from time to time, and he hated seeing them. At times he thought the agony of missing her would crush him, and when he couldn't stand it anymore, he called her. The worst of it was that she always sounded the same. She always sounded so warm and so sensual and so sexy. Sometimes he pretended to himself that she was coming home to him, that she was on a trip or away on a weekend, but she wasn't. She was gone. By September, Charlie Waterston looked sadly battered and felt even worse. Carol had called to say she was filing for divorce by then. Everything was even worse for Charlie in October. 
The man in charge of the New York office of his architectural firm had a heart attack. The partner who could have taken his place announced that he was leaving to open a new firm of his own in Los Angeles, and the two senior partners of the firm, Bill Jones and Arthur Whitaker, flew to London to ask Charlie to come back to New York and take over. It was everything Charlie had never wanted. From the moment he had moved to London ten years before, he had known he never wanted to work in New York again, and he had spent a decade thrilled to be working in Europe. Charlie thought design was far more exciting abroad, particularly in Italy and France. He enjoyed his Asian projects as well, and he had every intention of remaining in Europe. I can't, he said with an intractable look when they proposed the idea to him. But both of his senior partners were prepared to be tenacious. They needed him in New York to run the office. Why not? they asked with candor. He didn't want to tell them he just didn't want to, but he didn't. Even if you want to come back here eventually, there's no reason why you can't come to New York for a year or two. There are a lot of interesting developments in the States right now. You might find that you actually prefer it. He didn't want to explain to them that there was no chance of it, nor did they want to point out to him that, now that his wife had left, he had no reason not to take the job. Unlike the other men they'd thought of, he wasn't tied to anyone, and he was free to go anywhere. He had no wife, no children, no family ties anywhere. There was no reason whatsoever why he couldn't rent his house for a year or two and go to the New York office to keep it on an even keel, or at least until they could find someone else to run it for them. It's very, very important to us, Charlie. We'd really like you to think it over, they insisted. Charlie felt as though an express train were heading for him. He wished he could call Carol to discuss his problem, but that was out of the question. And he soon realized that he had no choice. He had to go. They would never forgive him if he didn't. He tried.